I am excited to say we're starting a new book today. It's been a while in Isaiah, which has been really cool, but we're going into Nehemiah. So uh, it's an account of God moving upon the heart of a man to take a lead role in doing a great work despite opposition. So we move from prophecy to a historical narrative. And uh, it's exciting to see how God will use this book in our lives. In all of our hearts, I believe there's a desire to be useful and to be doing something meaningful in our lives, especially in our walk with Christ. And as much as we desire that work to, to occur, there is a bit of a reluctance, I think, well, in me and perhaps in all of us. It's not as attractive for God to do a work in me as through me. I prefer the work to be done. And then I can kind of just step back and just say, see what God did without him having to change me first. Um, But this book is going to give us insight into prayer, uh, how to work with the united team, how to overcome opposition, to have victory. And it's really a challenge to say, do you believe that God could use a person to change the course of a nation? Do you believe that God can use you to accomplish things that have been impossible for 150 years that other very qualified and capable people did not see accomplished in their day, but God wants to do it in your day through you once he's worked in you. That's really uh, a big challenge, isn't it? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for our family here in Jesus Christ. Thank you for the heart that you've given us to desire to hear from you, to draw near to you, to meet with you. And we pray you would pour out your spirit upon us without measure this morning, Lord, that we might indeed have insight into our own hearts, that we might see our own unbelief, uh, to face those fears, to deal with complacency or, or depression, and to press on, knowing that you have promised and you will be faithful. We just ask your blessing upon this whole day and our time together in Jesus' name. Amen. So a little bit of background as we get into the book. It's believed to have been written by Nehemiah. He was a cupbearer to the king of Persia, and he was of the tribe of Judah. He was one who led the third return from exile. So I have a graphic to show about this that'll kind of give you a picture because we've been talking about so long with Isaiah and how they were going to go into captivity for 70 years, and uh, it's partially there. So, as you can see, they they were in captivity for 70 years. The Babylonians took Jerusalem in 586 B.C., and, and this shows us that the process of restoration is not quick and it's not easy. When you think about someone being restored, we think, oh, well, they should be restored right away. But, you know, it takes some time, and it took them a long time to come to that place where they were fully established back in the place where God gave them. This is from the Bible Knowledge Commentary, by the way. So, in 539 B.C., Babylon fell to the Medes and the Persians, and in response to the command of King Cyrus, about 50,000 Jews left Babylon, which is a small fraction of the total amount that went into captivity, they went back um, with Zerubbabel and they rebuilt the temple. That was their first big uh, job. 
It was about a four-month journey, about 1,400 Ks to get back. So it was a big trek going back to Israel. They overcame all sorts of obstructions, and they built the temple, though not according to its former glory in Solomon's day. Then there was a gap of about 57 years, and the priest and scribe Ezra returned with about four to 5,000 people, and he dealt primarily with the moral condition of the people. They had uh, fallen into idolatry. They had married some of the, the heathen people of the land. They were involved with a lot of pagan practices. And so he was grieved by this, and he taught them. He taught them from the word, and they began to take big steps in obedience to God. And then in 444 B.C., Nehemiah leads this third return to Jerusalem, about 150 years after Jerusalem fell at the beginning. And God used him to clear the walls, to clear it of rubble, and to rebuild. It was something that neither Zerubbabel nor Ezra was able to accomplish in 52 days. So it's a pretty remarkable, amazing thing that God did through him. And it's wild that God took this cupbearer, likely a eunuch, from the courts of the king of Persia, and he would go back to Israel and be used in this building project to establish God's people. And I love the fact that he uses a guy that it's not his expertise, right? He's not a builder. This is not his job. He's not a scribe. He's, he is of the house of Judah, but he's really not in the world's eyes really qualified for this job. And yet God uses him and all sorts of people to accomplish amazing things in the midst of their enemies when it was difficult and hard. And the question is, will we do our part for the things that God leads us to do? Those impossible things that have not been done. But he's given you a burden and he's given you a vision and he has given you a desire to see something accomplished for him, not for you, but for him. Will we do our part to lay that foundation of prayer? So let's go to Nehemiah 1. Thanks for that. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 1. And we'll just jump in. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hekeliah, It came to pass in the month of Chislev, in the twentieth year, as I was in Shushan, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came with men from Judah, and I asked him concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. Nehemiah served in this privileged position as a cupbearer to the king. He was a very trusted man because his job was involved and he would taste the wine to ensure that the king had not been poisoned, which meant that he, any day, could be poisoned. And he was also likely a eunuch. We know this because of in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of Hebrew, he's described plainly as being a eunuch. Also, he's, we, he's talked about as being in the presence of the queen. So he had access to the queen. He was with the king a Jew who had been born likely in captivity in Babylon and then had been moved to Persia. Eunuchs were often foreigners who could not dream of taking the throne, causing an insurrection. They were, they were a bit disposable, being a foreigner, and uh, if they displeased the king, it could mean their lives. But they were very trusted. If you had a good one, you would actually trust them with anything because... Uh, 
as they, your life, their life was in your hand because you were making sure that the food that they ate and the, the drink that they had was not poisoned. And it was common that you would be drinking wine while you were considering policy. And so he was there to provide an ear, to listen to what he was saying, to ensure that he was protected in his decision so he could weigh in on policy. Later in the book, Nehemiah, he describes Hanani's character as a faithful man. And he feared God more than many. He came to him while he was going about his business as the king's cupbearer. And these men, in the 20th year of Artaxerxes' reign, came and they had come back from Jerusalem. So Nehemiah was pretty interested about this. He was curious how the people in Jerusalem were faring. And he gives insight into Nehemiah's care for other people. Because in his role, he could have been all about himself. He could have been bragging about, like Haman did with the king and Esther. Remember, oh, everyone's been invited. I'm the only one who was invited to the banquet of wine. Well, that's not what Nehemiah is talking about. He's like, well, what's going on? I want to know what's going on in Jerusalem. I, he doesn't talk about all his exploits and his, his uh, position or his role or his power. He cared about people outside the palace. On the other hand, he could have really struggled with his role. He could have struggled with even the physical changes because most people did not become eunuchs because they wanted to be. This was forced upon them. It was decided for them at a young age. And so he could have been dealing and very struggling with the whole concept of um, his body, how his body looked because of the changes. There was no hormone therapy. Um, that he would not have a wife or children, that he was a slave. He, he could have been very fixated on himself and his situation. We know that even royalty, you can suffer from depression and difficulty. And he, we don't know any about that. But I say all that to say he's not self-focused. He's not self-exalted. He's really caring about the people in Jerusalem. Verse 3, and they said to me, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down and its gates are burned with fire. So it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So we ask this question, I think when we ask, well, how are you doing? How are you going? We, we enjoy hearing like, oh, things are great. Well, things were not great. Things were terrible. He says they are under constant duress. They are distressed and in great reproach. The survivors who survived the captivity, they were barely surviving in Jerusalem. And this is a place where God intended they thrive. And he's like, well, they're just surviving. They're eking out a living. The walls are gone. The gates are burnt with fire. And we're going to go into what that means. The word distress, when you say, oh, I was, I was a bit distressed, it doesn't really capture what the original word is here. Um, I think distress, it's probably six times uh, translated into this fashion, but it's translated evil 442 times. So evil, wickedness, wicked, mischief, hurt, bad, trouble, all those are more commonly translated from that word. So they were in a terrible like you say, oh, their conditions are 
wrong. Awful. They're reproached. It means shame and disgrace. And one of the reasons is the walls were broken down and the gates were burnt with fire. And it's hard for us to really comprehend what this means because this is much more than just your crim-safe screens and your doors. This is like huge, has big physical and uh, spiritual implications. If there were no walls, there was no elevated place for a watchman. There was no way to warn people if enemies were coming. There was nothing to defend. There was no way to keep anything valuable safe. So you couldn't be, you couldn't keep valuables. You'd be in perpetual poverty. Anyone could come and go. At the moment, there are walls around the Gihon Spring. The water source to the city would have been completely unprotected. So your means of water and drinking would be, um, in trouble. There was no king, there was no army, there were no allies, there was no one to call. They were surrounded by enemies. You were at the mercy of wild beasts or thieves or invaders, and there weren't lights. Like, when it was night, it was night, and you were afraid of what's going to happen to us. Now, gates, they not only provided security, but they were a little bit like uh, Chris's kitchen. They were really the center of the activity of the city. It was a place of commerce, of law, and news. The king and the elders would meet in the gate to talk to the people. He would address their concerns there, and it had the function of a modern-day courthouse. If there was any justice to be meted out, it was at the gate. If you wanted to gather people to have a proclamation or to address them, God told the prophets to go into the gate and to declare these truths to his people. It was also a place of worship. Uh, At the biblical site today in Tel Dan, if you go to the gate, right outside there's a shrine where before entering the city you would always offer a sacrifice. Now, that was not what God's people did, but it was a place where they would worship. It says in 2 Chronicles 31.2, And Hezekiah appointed the divisions of the priests and the Levites according to their divisions, each man according to his service, the priests and Levites for burnt offerings and peace offerings to serve, to give thanks, and to praise in the gates of the camp of the Lord. So it was a huge thing. Also, if you go to uh, the old city today in the Jaffa Gate, you'll see a mezuzah, which is the law that was supposed to be written on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And if your gates are burnt with fire, you can't fulfill that command. You can't have the law, that scripture in that there. And so the gates, very critical. The walls, very critical for security. And also that spiritual aspect where if we don't have gates, so much of our life is cut off. Now, when Nehemiah heard this, how did he respond? He was really affected by it. It says, so it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So he grieves, he mourns. He just says, i got to find a place to sit down. And he sits down, and he just cries. He cries about what's happening. And I think, is, when's the last time I heard news that affected me that profoundly? I hear bad news all the time, right? We hear bad, we're inundated with bad news, and maybe that's one reason. Why, why we may not be as affected as he was. But we see he had a heart 
for God and for God's people. And when he heard that bad things were befalling them, he mourned, he fasted, he prayed. He didn't just shrug it off and go about his business. Nehemiah could have been angry at God. He could have criticized the incompetence of Zerubbabel and Ezra. Like, why haven't those guys done something and kind of been angry in his spirit? Or he could have condemned the laziness of the people. What are they doing over there? Didn't they know it was going to be difficult and be critical of them in his palace in Shushan where he's serving the king? But he doesn't do that. He has access to the king of Persia, but instead he chooses to take it to the king of kings. And for four months, he prayed to God. For four months, he fasted and he prayed and he sought the Lord and he grieved over what was happening. We have this expectation that when I feel burdened about something, that I should pray and within 30 seconds... I'm just throwing that number out there. A relatively short time, my burden should be lifted away. I shouldn't have to have that burden anymore. But that's not how it works. Sometimes God will lift that burden very quickly, but other times God intends to use that burden to do something inside of us, to do a work in us so he can then do a work through us. And that's what he would do with Nehemiah. God would lift this burden in due time, but for four months, he struggled under this burden, and he took it to the Lord. He did not presume what God should do, when God should do it, how he should do it. He doesn't suggest any of that, as we're going to read in his prayer, which really uh, is a microcosm of his prayers that he prayed for those four months. If we want to be tools in God's hands for good, we have to first submit to being changed. I need to change. You see something out there that you think needs to change? Well, God wants to change something in you. He wants to change you so he can change that thing out there. This process can take a while. He who sows in tears will reap in joy, and sometimes there's a lot of sowing before there's any reaping. You can, you can sow for a long time and see nothing to come from it. Nehemiah, he prayed and fasted for four months before he talked to the king. Moses, he tended his father's flocks while for 40 years his people were slaves in Egypt. Forty years he tended his father-in-law's flock before he appeared before Pharaoh as a deliverer. Forty years. We often want to rush into a work, but God, he has all the time. He'll take his time. Joseph, he was forgotten for two years in prison when there was this big famine coming up. God knew about it. David, he was anointed 15 years before he was proclaimed king in Hebron. So there's this passage of time quite often we see among God's people. Jesus Christ, he waited till he was 30 years old before he called his first disciple to himself. He didn't talk to one of his childhood buddies who they, they were mates when they were eight and all the way up. He's like, hey man, someday I'm going to change the world. You know, you stick with me, it'll be cool. He didn't do that. He waited until he was 30, and then he went to fishermen and a tax collector. And he chose people that you, you probably wouldn't choose um, to accomplish those sort of things. But he did that. So he waited. There was this time. 
I suggest we're a lot like the other animals in the fable of the little red hen. Different versions of it. It's a Russian fable with, uh, you know, a dog, a chicken. Uh, the hen is the chicken. But you've got, uh, what, there's a dog, there's a cat, there's all these things. So basically the hen is like, uh, hey, who wants to help me? Now, everyone wants to eat the bread, but they're not too interested in planting the grain, um, watering the grain, harvesting the grain, threshing the grain, making the grain into flour, then kneading the dough, then baking it. Like All this stuff takes time. And he goes, hey, do you want to help me uh, water that grain? Oh, not I, not I. You want to help me uh, thresh it? Oh, not I, not I. You want to help me eat it? Yes. And she goes, nope. I'll just eat it myself. That's how it ends. But see, it's kind of how we can be. We're like, Lord, we want you to do the planting and the watering and the harvesting and the threshing. I want to just eat it. I just want to see it done. I don't want to deal with this process, and I really don't want you dealing with me. I really don't want to be changed by you. I I want to do big things for you, but I'm not willing to even make this small adjustment in my own life. Like, I want the big stuff, God. And God's like, well, he who is faithful in the little things will be faithful over much. And we go, no, 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 no. I would be faithful if it was really a big deal. That's not how it works. Because you show that you would be faithful. We can be deluded. You show you will be faithful over the big thing when you deal with the little thing. That one little thing that God's saying to you. That you're like, no. I don't see what that has to do with anything. So Nehemiah prays, and we're going to read what he prayed, starting in verse 5. It says, And I said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments, please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open, that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now, day and night, for the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Both my father's house and I have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. So he acknowledges the great God of heaven, the awesome God. And prayer is like the heartbeat of one who fears God. This prayer rivals that of Daniel in Daniel chapter 9, verses 4 through 6, and Ezra's prayer in Ezra 9, 6 through 15. And just a side note, in the writings, in the Jewish writings, uh, Ezra is connected with Nehemiah. They're written as one. Nehemiah knew that God would be faithful to his word. He knew that God would be faithful to the covenant he had made. He would continue to be merciful to his people. But I see some, some, some humility in Nehemiah where he's not making demands of God. He's not standing on his biblical authority to demand that God do something. Instead, he says, please. God, will you please let your ear be attentive? Now, if we tell our children to say please and thank you, shouldn't this be reflected in our prayers? Just, we don't have to. As far as like God's like, I didn't hear you say the word. Right? We do that with our kids, right? Oh, what was that? Um, 
But he's, he knows that he's unworthy to talk to God. He knows who God is. He knows that God has great power. And he is a judge. And he is the king of kings. And there's a certain way you talk to a king with respect. And you honor that role. And he, he realized he's not even worthy for God to look at him. For God to look at the problems that are out there. Where you go, God, don't you see what's going on? He says, Lord, please look upon our affliction. We've sinned before you. And notice how he freely confesses sin. He says, both my father's house and I have sinned. He says, we've acted corruptly against you. We haven't kept your commands. And this is a common theme throughout many of those prayers I mentioned before in Daniel and Ezra. Ezra excuse me. Now, when we come before God, isn't it typical? Or if you're trying to get favor from someone, you talk about the good things that you did. Right? You're like, well, can I go over there? Well, I did this. Like, I, can I go to my friend's house today? Oh, okay. Um, and you go, well, I don't know. Well, I did my chores, and I've been doing good at school, and I've done this, and I've done that. And you go, well, okay, you've earned it, right? You have been doing a good job at school, so you can go to your friend's house. Your your request has been granted because of the good things you've done. Now, imagine if, like my son comes to me, and he says, Dad, I have not cleaned my room when you told me to. I have been lying about my grades, and they've been really bad, and I've been doing this. Can you let me go to my friend's house? And I'd be like, what? (laughs) What is going on? But that's what he does here. God doesn't want us trotting out all the good things we've done. That why he, the reason why he should do something for us is because I've done these things. Like I've tithed, I've done this, I've done that. I've sacrificed. I, I'm in, you know, you should feel sorry for me because of the pain I'm under. Instead, he, because anything good from us comes from God. So it's like we're using God's gift to claim our goodness that God would act, but then it's not grace. And so he says, God, I am a sinner. My parents have been sinners. We have just, we are ruined. We've completely broken your commandments and we haven't honored you. Please look at us now. See the difference? That's the heart that we should have. God desires that we confess our sin, not proclaim our own goodness. That's what moves him. Repentance. Confession. Verse 8. Remember, I pray, the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you were cast out to the farthest part of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. So he acknowledges God's greatness. He acknowledges his own sin. He confesses it. And then he reminds God of promises that God has made to his people. And God had been true to his word. They had sinned, and God had scattered them, just as he said. But Nehemiah, remember, in the next part too, he hadn't forgotten that, because if God scattered them, he would gather them. He's like, God, you said you'd scatter us, and we are scattered. Here I am in Persia, but you said you'd gather us if we meet your conditions, which is to keep your law. God didn't tell his people they had to earn their way back. He would do it. I will gather. That is so awesome. I like what Matthew Henry said 
in his commentary. He says, if God were not more mindful of his promises than we are of his precepts, we should be undone. Our best pleas, therefore, in prayer are those that are taken from the promise of God, the word on which he has caused us to hope. God doesn't need to be reminded about what he said, but we do. We forget. We forget what God has said. And in the trial and the circumstance and when those walls are down and uh, the gates are burned with fire and it's like it's been like this forever, we can come to the Lord and say, you've said this, Lord. Remember what you said. It's not me telling you what you should do. You said you would do it. If you could turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy 30, verses 1 through 5, we'll read a passage that he's referring to here. So, Deuteronomy chapter 30. And God gives them this conditional promise. His gathering was conditional of his people returning to him heart and soul. It's like they would need to return to him with all their heart and soul before they could physically return and be reestablished in Jerusalem. Deuteronomy 30, verse 1. Now it shall come to pass when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God drives you, and you return to the Lord your God and obey his voice according to all that I command you today, you and your children, with all your heart and with all your soul, that the Lord your God will bring you back from captivity and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where the Lord your God has scattered you. If any of you are driven out to the farthest parts under heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you and from there he will bring you. Then the Lord your God will bring you to the land which your fathers possessed and you shall possess it. He will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. See that in verse 1? If you call to mind what I've said, where you are. So wherever you are, you recall to mind what God has said. And then you return to him with your heart and your soul. He's like, I will have compassion on you and I will gather you. When things are scattered, we lose them. You can be just changing the tire on a car and lose the lug nuts if you... I mean, I, when I do that, I keep them all together. I put them in a pile. If I don't put them in a pile, they could be anywhere. And then I'd have a big problem. And it's like God doesn't, he's not like me. Okay? If I scattered seed and you said, gather up that seed again, I want every single one. I could not do it. I could not show you where every seed went. The, the seed that was carried away by a bird, the one that, hit the wind or was in the water and ran off. Like I couldn't gather them up again. But see, God, he knows where every person he scattered was. Not one was lost. He knew to the farthest part of heaven where that person was. And because of that, he could also gather them. So what a God who knows and loves his people. He knows his sheep by name. It says he knows that all the stars in the heavens by name and he knows their proper place a god who can do that we don't need to worry about being forgotten by him but there is this partnership isn't there where uh he says if you recall to mind what i've told you nehemiah's prayer is part of this process 
And at the end, if you, uh, if you return to me with all your heart and soul. Him being moved in Persia was part of this process. God would fulfill his word. Verse 10. Now these are your servants. Back to Nehemiah 1, sorry. Now these are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power, by your strong hand. O Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name. And let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. For I was the king's cupbearer. God established Israel. He alone could rebuild them. And God had redeemed his people, which means to ransom, to release, or preserve. God had preserved his people. God had ransomed them. He would bring them out with a mighty hand. And so he said, Lord, be attentive to my prayers as he prayed them for the next four months. Uh, and we, we know that because of the, the, the dates he gives at the beginning and then in the second chapter. He prayed not because he was unsure if God heard him, but because he knew he heard him. Isn't there a big difference between the two? Like, I'm hoping this is getting through, God, so I'm going to keep praying. No. He prayed because he knew God heard him. That's why he was praying in the first place. He wasn't just trying, hoping, just wishing on a star or something. I mean, he was praying to God. And he fasted. He, he allowed himself to feel for other people. And I can grow in that area. This burden did not wane. He kept praying. He kept seeking. I like how Spurgeon's quoted in the Enduring Word Commentary. He says, Laying the matter to heart, he did not begin to speak with other people about what they would do, nor did he drop a wonderful scheme about what might be done if so many thousand people joined in the enterprise, but it occurred to him that he would do something himself. He wasn't passive in this. He sought the Lord. He prayed. And he said, Lord, give me favor in the eyes of the king. Because he knew that this king, he could have a massive positive impact in the lives of God's people. And he had access to the king. And you think about Esther. For such a time as, as this, she was brought before, she had been made queen of the Medes and Persians. And she was instrumental in God saving the Jews from Haman and his scheme to kill them. And he realized, like, like I know, I, I'm not dumb. I know I have a connection with the king. He can do great things. But he doesn't create a committee. He doesn't start brainstorming. He doesn't start strategizing, you know, starting to budget or whatever. He's just a guy praying and doing his job and serving the Lord, lamenting over the sorry state of Jerusalem. I love that Nehemiah is fruitful right where God put him. That there were likely people all over the world who were grieved about the condition of Jerusalem. No more than the people who were living there. They too were grieved. But God chose to use a guy who is from the tribe of Judah, who is a cupbearer in Persia, to be praying for four months, and then to be mightily used by God to unify the people and to do a great work. Only God does this. 1,500 Ks away, Nehemiah is praying about something, and God is listening to him. Now, I love the story of Gladys Aylward. She's a British woman 
and she had this burden for China. She had become a member of the China Mission Inland Center in London and failed the exams. So she was not seen fit. She was too old to go serve as a missionary in the foreign field. And yet, she had a job as a parlor maid and she saved up and she bought a ticket, one-way ticket, to China in 1930 to support an elderly missionary who was in the field named Jeannie. She's going to a place where she doesn't know the language, where foreigners are distrusted, and yet, and very rare, and yet she has a burden for these people. So she's working at a mule inn, and, and her job was they would bring these, these travelers would be traveling up and down the mountains, and she'd bring the, the mules in, and that was her job, to water them and to feed them, to groom them, clean up after them. So she, she spends her life savings to go to this foreign place. She's all, she feels very alone. And, uh, but this is what she feels God's called her to do. And then Jeannie dies. And it's like, well, what do I do now? And she, she really battled with, with what she should do, how she should respond, because here she is. And she felt like God forgot about her. But then it came to pass that the Mandarin came. She was chosen by him to be a foot inspector because she was one of the, she was the only lady that had unbound foot in the, feet in the whole region. And uh, when they, they said, we're, we're stopping this practice. And so she traveled, because before she couldn't travel, she was able to travel with escorts and go to all these villages, and she totally incorporated the gospel into all of her presentations, where, all right, we're going to talk about feet, but first we're going to sing. We sing? Oh, yeah, we love to sing. And they sung a hymn, you know. She taught them songs. She told them about Jesus, and people are saved. Then God connects her with orphans and And when she left during World War II, she had over 80 orphans with her that she brought to safety. And so God saw fit to take the one they called the little woman from Britain to protect feet of little girls in China who would grow to be fit, able-bodied women and to take the gospel into remote areas of the world where people were saved for eternity. God does that. In 1958, the life of Gladys Aylward was made into a film titled The End of the Sixth Happiness. And when Newsweek did a review of the film and summarized the plot, there was a reader who supposed the story to be fiction and said, in order for a movie to be good, the story should be believable, was his take on her life. God does unbelievable things through people who pray. Through people who are saying, Lord, I want to be used by you to do whatever you want. I'm going to keep praying. I'm going to keep seeking. And Lord, help me. Look upon me. I can do nothing by myself. But I know through Christ I can do all things that you call me to do. So I ask you, is there something on your heart to do for God? Are you willing for God to change you so that he can use you? And I encourage you to do what Nehemiah did. He prayed. He fasted. He confessed his sin. He reminded God of the promises he had made. There's no need to rush. There's no need to worry. You don't need to consult with flesh and blood. You take the matter to God, and he will lead you. He saved you. He will accomplish it. And what I I really love uh, of Nehemiah is 
he saw himself as a servant of the Most High God. He had a king greater than King Artaxerxes, and he didn't identify as, as a eunuch or a slave or a cupbearer, like, well, i got a really important job, and think of the good I can do here. He was willing to lay all that aside to do what God told him to do. And he didn't know what God was telling him to do. And it took months of praying for God to show him the next step, as we'll see next week. Okay, seeing how I'm going to manage this. I've really enjoyed studying Nehemiah, I'm telling you. All right, let's turn to Isaiah 56, starting in verse 1. I know we just went through Isaiah, but we, we can't stay away for too long. Isaiah 56, verse 1. God put this promise to eunuchs in his law. Eunuchs were not permitted to go into the temple. That was one prohibition placed upon them. But God had, it's like in Isaiah, you see this great promise where uh, we too can be encouraged because we go through dry times in our walk. It's not always the rainy season. It's not always the growing season. Sometimes it's like winter where our hearts can be cold and hard and sometimes dry, like an arid desert. And we just go, living water? What living water? Well, let's take comfort in what God says here in Isaiah 56, verse 1. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness. For my salvation is about to come and my righteousness to be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who lays hold on it who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Do not let the son of the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord speak, saying, The Lord has utterly separated me from his people, nor let the eunuch say, Here I am, a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and hold fast my covenant, even to them I will give in my house and within my walls a place and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Nehemiah didn't mourn his lack of children, but he sought to do the children of God good. And God has seen fit to give some people children, and other people don't have children, but every person can rejoice in being a child of God. So he says, you may feel dry, you may feel alone, you may feel utterly separated, but know that I have a place in my house and within my walls, a place and a name better than that of sons and daughters. Better than any earthly legacy, you have an eternal legacy, a living legacy with the living God. Praise him for that. So don't lose heart, brothers and sisters. If you love God and you care about the plight of others, won't you pray? Won't you seek Him? Won't you remind God of the promises He's made to you and also in His Word? So we are going to uh, do celebrate communion this morning. And I think about Nehemiah. He heard the distress of the people and he was moved. Well, God looked upon everyone and saw the sin, the separation from God, the eternity in hell that we are doomed to.
And God was moved to action. He sent his own son, Jesus Christ, to be the Savior, to seek and to save the lost. Lost. And if you will go, actually, no, we won't go there. Um, we'll go to another place. Uh, if you want to turn to Psalm 22, verse 23. Jesus has overcome. He has conquered sin and death and hell. And uh, I, I should mourn my sin, but I should not mourn Christ's sacrifice. I should rejoice in his sacrifice because it's through his shedding of blood that I've been redeemed. My sins have been atoned for. I have been uh, brought into the presence of God and he has come into me. So the chains of sin were shattered when Jesus breathed his last. And that's something we can rejoice and shout over, that the head of Satan was crushed under his foot and that Jesus raised himself up from the dead. Because we don't just look at Christ's suffering on the cross as the end. We realize he, he did die so he could rise. Because if he did not die, then he did not rise. But he died. And three days later, he rose from the dead. Victory that same new life that's available to everyone who repents and trusts in him. So how great our joy, how great our rejoicing in Christ's victory, that our guilt has been dissolved in his victory. There's a time to acknowledge our sin. There's also a time to rejoice in his forgiveness. There's a time to rejoice and celebrate what he has done. So if you read Psalm 22, it goes through, uh, really, it's the suffering of the Messiah until the point where it says, He has heard me. And this is the, the aftermath. Psalm 22, verse 23 through 26. It says, You who fear the Lord, praise Him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify Him and fear Him. All you offspring of Israel. For He has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has He hidden His face from Him. But when he cried to him, he heard, My praise shall be of you in the great assembly. I will pay my vows before those who fear him. The poor shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. When Jesus was afflicted, he did not hide his face from the Father. And it says, When he cried to him, he heard. When we are afflicted and we cry to the Lord, he hears, he answers. It says, my praise shall be of you. I will pay my vows before those who fear him. Let this be an opportunity as we commune with the Lord today and celebrate Christ's and remember his sacrifice, that we respond to what Jesus has done with praise and thanksgiving, that we'd praise him for what he's done, that we'd rejoice in his salvation. The poor shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for hearing our cries. Thank you for giving us promises and for this psalm that we can read and passages in Isaiah and throughout all scripture, Lord, that's inspired by you, is powerful and true. Lord, bring to mind the things you've said to us that we might remind you of those things. Not that you've forgotten, but Lord, that we want to remember. 
we want to remember what you've said. We want to glorify and praise you. Thank you for sending Jesus to be the Savior of the world. Thank you that his blood was shed so we could be forgiven and made new creatures, born again into the family of God. Thank you that you have a house for us, Lord. You have walls. You have security and protection for us. Lord, I pray that you would minister to our hearts and that you would be glorified as we remember, as we obey Christ in receiving communion today. In Jesus' name, amen. So as the team is leading us in a song, I invite you, if you